Welcome to episode 4 of the Think Why Life podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Over the last few decades, Ian Redmond has worked in several capacities across various prestigious conservation careers. He is currently the chairperson of Ape Alliance and is also the ambassador for the UN Convention of Migratory Species. More importantly, he is the co-founder of Rebalance Earth. This is a startup working towards using blockchain to monetize the value of ecosystem services of various species and landscapes. Talking about ecosystem services, did you know that over 200 million people in India live in and around India's protected areas? They rely on these natural ecosystems for basic sustenance in the form of fuel wood, bushmeat, medicines and to graze their cattle. This obviously has immense impact on India's ecosystem. It is for this reason why Think Wildlife Foundation has partnered with various organizations around India to help provide sustainable alternative livelihoods to these communities. You can help these alternative livelihood projects by visiting our stores in the links provided below. 90% of the revenue is directly returned to the local communities. not only incentivizing a conservation but also providing some of the poorest communities in india with a source of income uh, welcome again to our podcast it's a pleasure to have you on so my first question is that why did you start rebalance earth and what is your long term vision okay well rebalance earth um was initiated by the coming together of three people from very different backgrounds um me from a conservation background um Ralph Shami who is the assistant director at the International Monetary Fund and an economist of of global renown but in this instance it wasn't his IMF work it was his personal interest in valuing the services provided by individual animals such as great whales or uh, elephants and uh, the third founder at that point was uh, Walid Al Sakaf who is a blockchain specialist living in London and he he runs a podcast like yours um about blockchain and invited Ralph Sharmi to be a guest on his podcast um and during the conversation um for reasons i don't fully understand my name came up <laughs> and uh, to my surprise i found that um that Ralph and and he claims other people at the international monetary fund had watched my ted talk about gardeners of the forest um which is about the the role that uh, apes and elephants play in ecosystems that, that now are considered important for climate reasons as well as for biodiversity and uh, anyway this this coming together of of three co-founders led to the idea of of starting a, a company um it's a, a community interest company so its aim is not to make us all millionaires but to um change the global economy and what we're trying to do is to bring the cost of conservation and manage, managing of, of habitats into the global economy rather than it being an afterthought there's so much of conservation funding now is either philanthropy and particularly during a cost of living crisis at the end of the month has have we got any money left to give to charity and if we give it to charity is it to help um underprivileged children or or the starving in the world or or animals and if it's animals is it captive animals that are being 
abused or is it <clears throat> wild animals? So the, that funding is a, a subset of a subset of a subset of available finance, uh, or it's, it's aid money. And governments give aid money primarily to help developing countries to develop, not necessarily to protect nature. So again, environment is always at the bottom of those lists of priorities. And we're trying to change that because without a healthy environment, the whole economy is going to founder. And gradually, some economists are beginning to realize this, Ralph being at the forefront of those. So you mentioned the importance of elephants and apes in biodiversity and the climate crisis. So could you just elaborate on why elephants and apes are so important? My background is as a wildlife biologist, but um, turned conservationist um, because in I started with studying mountain gorillas in the 1970s and studied uh, elephants in Kenya that, that are fascinating. They go underground into caves to mine mineral-rich rock from the walls of the caves. Uh, in both of those field studies, individual animals I'd got to know were killed by poachers because someone somewhere in the world wanted a bit of their anatomy. With the gorillas, it was their hands and their skulls, which are sold as curios. And with the elephants, of course, it's primarily their front teeth, which are sold to be carved into ivory knickknacks and ornaments and and things. So, so those are both instances where the the commercial value of an animal increases when it's dead. And no one has really considered the commercial value of an animal when it's alive, unless you can take a tourist to see it. And then you can build jobs and and you know make profits out of animals because tourists will travel the world to see them. Uh, but as you know, in, in the past three years, we've lived through the not just the global pandemic, but government's efforts to slow transmission of the disease, which has led to grounding of flights, uh, almost an end to international travel for pleasure. Um, and all those national parks, which depended on tourism dollars, have been left high and dry because the tourists haven't been coming. They're beginning to return. But now everyone's being told, well, we must limit our, our international flights because they're very carbon um expensive and we're trying to reduce our personal carbon footprint so tourism may not be the best um tool in the toolbox for conserving nature how else can you value nature um well the role that apes and elephants play in the forests of africa and south and southeast asia has been described as the, they're the gardeners of the forest in fact the elephants are considered the mega gardeners of the forest because they're so big and that's partly to do with seed dispersal. They eat fruit and swallow the seeds. And then the next day or a couple of days later, those seeds are dropped in, in the, the dung of the animal. And that dung decomposes and becomes manure and fertilizes the seedlings. So for the next generation of trees, fruit trees, um, it's ideal. They're miles from the parent plant. They're left on the ground with fertilizer. And because these seeds have co-evolved with, with animals, the species of plants have co-evolved with animals, those seeds have a tough external coating to protect them in their passage through the gut. And that means that if they just drop off the tree, water doesn't really get in. They need to be chewed a bit and partially digested for them to germinate successfully. So 
the role of animals in in sowing the seeds of the trees of tomorrow is really important. What has only recently become more clear is the role of these species in the nutrient recycling and the thinning of the forest. So if, if you think about it, if if you're growing vegetables, you don't want wind-blown seeds of wildflowers coming into your vegetable patch. We call them weeds, and we weed them out. We pull them out, and then we put the, the weeds onto a compost heap, and when they rot down, we take that compost and put it back on the vegetables. So we're converting competitors for nutrients, the weeds, into fertilizer for the plants that we want. And effectively, because apes and elephants are eating vegetation that is fairly low carbon, and then producing dung, which goes into the soil and fertilizes the, the huge old trees, which are the ones that store the most carbon, they're weeding the forest. So it's all to do with maximizing the potential of a forest to provide ecosystem services that we now value. And what Ralph has done is calculated the dollar value of those services, not just of a whole forest, but of individual animals. And he worked out that one forest ele elephant, for example, um, can is responsible for the additional sequestration of $1.75 million worth of carbon. And that was at the 2019 price of carbon on the European exchange. That price is more than tripled now. So perhaps we're looking at upwards of $5 million for an elephant's work, not for the elephant himself or herself. It's the work they do every day that has this value. And we're looking at, at combining that carbon price with other biodiversity benefits and poverty alleviation benefits to produce nature credits, which we're just in the process of setting up our pilot project. So we haven't demonstrated the proof of concept yet, but we will do so probably within months because we have spoken to a lot of corporations that have expressed an interest in buying these credits as part of their attempts to balance their carbon budget, uh, but also their desire to be good citizens in the world and, and help reduce poverty and um, provide employment and um, better health care, better education, all those things which the finance from these nature credits could fund. And the reason that Walid is important is because he brings in the blockchain. And one of the drawbacks with sending potentially millions of dollars to developing countries is that the accounting systems in those developing countries are a bit porous. And sometimes the money doesn't end up in the, the hands of the people who you're hoping to um, bring benefits to ecosystems and, and for them to improve their quality of life. So blockchain um, which I learn, it is not my subject, but I learn it's called a distributed ledger, where everyone along the transaction can see what everyone else is getting. So you agree to a, a division of the, the finances, so, so much to the government treasury, so much to the community, so much to the rangers that protect the elephant, etc. All the different stakeholders. And once that's agreed, then everyone can see how it's flowing. And that should sidestep the, the, the risk of corruption and uh, sort of embezzlement of funds by people who are suddenly presented with an economic opportunity they could only have dreamed of <laughs> if they could just ferret away the money in their own account. That, according to uh, our plan, should be very unlikely. And we will help 
communities to do what they think is important. We're not going to take those decisions. That's for the community to decide whether they want a, a new clinic or a new school or, or a, a new corn mill to grind their corn. But if they're growing corn, how do they keep the elephants from eating the corn? Well, electric fences or beehive fences or whatever the barrier that will keep the elephants out, those cost money. And at the moment, none of these communities have got that money. They depend on holding a handout to NGOs or you know, uh, government aid to say, please help us protect our crops. It will empower them to protect their own crops, get whatever advice they need, put put the things in, and, and then they'll be safer, they'll be more food secure, and the general quality of life will, will improve. That's, that's the concept behind Rebalance Earth. So you mentioned about nature grids. So could you just explain that um, you guys are providing nature grid solutions. So could you elaborate on how you provide these solutions? and uh, could you just also elaborate on some of your uh, projects you plan on piloting next year? Yes. Well, to demonstrate that a known elephant or, or, or gorilla, I mean, it, it maybe 25 to 30 gorillas equals one elephant in terms of biomass. <clears throat> we don't have the, <clears throat> the data to show how much measurable difference a family of gorillas makes to a forest. But we do have data for elephants. So I'm, I'm thinking at the moment in the short term in terms of elephant equivalents for other species until we have the data for, for the other uh, animals. But a credit based on the daily work done by an elephant or a group of gorillas depends on someone monitoring those animals to to say yes we have proof that this known family of gorillas or this known individual elephant is alive and well and doing what they do in the forest which we're now describing as work so it's like the equivalent of a worker in a factory clocking on when he comes to work and then clocking clocking off when he leaves work well of course elephants never clock on and clock off but each time you see them you are confirming just like the factory clock does that so much work has been done so a ranger or, or a community member sees an elephant, takes a digital photo, uploads it. We confirm and we're, we're working with um, artificial intelligence specialists to develop a, a means of facial recognition, which is very advanced for humans, but not so for other species. But the same principle applies. You teach artificial, artificial intelligence um, that that A, this is an elephant, we've got that. There are systems that can identify that this is an elephant and, and that's a buffalo and that's some other species. But at the moment, they haven't got the skill to, or the, the ability to identify individuals. This isn't just any old elephant, this is George. George the elephant, whose work is being sold through Rebalance Earth to companies wanting to offset their unavoidable greenhouse gas emissions and, and reduce their general ecological footprint on the world. So that creates a job in the monitoring of the elephant. It empowers the rangers because they now have money for the necessary equipment and transport and radios and so on to protect the elephant. Um, and gradually, as the scheme expands, we hope that across the... There are 50 countries in the world with elephants, uh, 37 in Africa and 13 in Asia. And although the relationship between savannah elephants 
and carbon is more complicated. It's not the above ground carbon that matters so much there. It's the below ground carbon because elephants are known for utilizing trees, which looks like destruction to the human eye. Of course, you can argue that the elephant's ancestors planted the trees hundreds of years ago. So why wouldn't they utilize them? But what that does is, is increase the amount of soil carbon because the bits of wood pass through the elephant and into the soil. Um, so we hope that potentially all 50 of those countries, and as we expand taxonomically into other species, uh, other countries uh, which don't have elephants can benefit from this principle of you identify the keystone species in an ecosystem that is providing services that the world now values. At the moment, it's, the focus is on carbon, but these ecosystems uh, generate water vapor, which travels around the world and falls as rain. So I, I argue that, that if you're buying your electricity from Scottish hydropower, for hydropower to work, you need rainfall. Where do the rain systems come from? Well, you can trace them on the world back to the tropical forests of Africa and Amazonia and Southeast Asia. And yet not a penny of my electricity bill, if I'm paying for hydropower, goes to protect those forests, which through evapotranspiration are putting water vapor into the atmosphere that travels around the globe, watering fields and filling up aquifers and powering hydro schemes. Uh, so what my, my goal is that, 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 that when you buy a loaf of bread, a portion of that payment goes to protect the ecosystem that provides rain to the fields where the farmer grows the wheat. If you buy a bottle of wine, likewise, those vineyards need rain. And the rain comes from these tropical forest ecosystems and, and of course, evaporation from the sea. But, but you can see the effect that tropical forest ecosystems have on global weather patterns. And that at the moment is not paid for. And there isn't a market value for water vapor in the sky. There will be, I'm, I'm pretty sure, in the near future, we're going to see other ecosystem services valued and the markets of the world investing in nature. And this is Ralph Sharma's concept. He calls it his new economic paradigm, that the e economy values living nature, not just when it's dead. Right now, you have to kill the animal, or cut down the tree before you can make any money from it, apart from tourism. And tourism is a, a you know, it, it can't solve all the problems of of the environment, whereas payment for ecosystem services could. And we're going to test that out in the coming months. So watch this space. So you guys are also part of the uh, Nature Credit Conference. So could you just talk about this a bit? Well, well, indeed, many of these concepts are new to many economists and people in the pension industry and corporations, invest, investment industries, things that I know very little about. So Walid and, and um, the Rebalance Earth team have put together on the 21st of February um, a, a one-day conference in London where these um, a, a meeting of, of these different uh, spheres of, of human activity, the, the economists and, and financial sector, and the conservation world and the development world are, are coming to... to hear about how this concept can work in much more detail than we can give in a half hour podcast um and we hope it will be a sort of a, a milestone meeting um 
and many of the corporations represented there will, we hope, want to um, invest in nature through these credits. And most of the money will go to the communities or to the, um, the, the rangers who protect these animals. Um, it also applies to marine ecosystems. Uh, it turns out that whales are really important in the carbon cycle and, and are responsible for the sequestration and storage of a couple of million dollars worth of carbon for each whale over the course of his or her life. And when you divide that up, you can work out essentially what, what a whale earns every year. And at the moment, no one's paying that salary and no one's benefiting from it. But if the um, people who who manage the waters in which the whale lives were to benefit from those whales, they would value them much more, even if tourists didn't come. So the whale watching is a, an important economic activity for many communities. But if the tourists don't come again, they're suddenly they're on their uppers. What do they do? Do they consider killing the whales? Well, they wouldn't do that. If every day that the whale is demonstrated to be alive, known individuals, yep, we confirm that so-and-so is alive. They haven't been seen for maybe 10 days or a couple of months. That means that every day's work between their last sighting and today's sighting can be paid because you've just proved that that worker is hard at work in the sea, fertilizing the phytoplankton and improving the productivity of the ocean through their fecal plumes. Just the same as in the forest, you can make the same claim when you record a known individual. Uh, so yes, we're exploring these, these concepts and we're setting up a working model. And we hope that as soon as it's demonstrated, we'll be able to expand it and replicate it in, in many parts of the world for different species. So that's my final question regarding rebalance Earth. So now I want to move more towards um, your other role, which is uh, you are also the chairman of Ape Alliance. So could you just talk about what Ape Alliance is and what your uh, vision is for Ape Alliance. Yes, the, the Ape Alliance is a loose coalition of NGOs and one or two private sector um, members. And we first got together in the, the late 90s, 96 it was, uh, mid-90s, um, because all over the world, field workers reporting declines in the numbers of, of apes. And by apes, I mean, um, the African apes, chimpanzees, bonobos, and gorillas, and the Asian apes, uh, orangutans, and gibbons, and siamangs. And all these species are our closest living relatives. We are apes. Humans are apes, taxonomically. Um, in terms of our genetics, we share 98, 99% of our DNA with the great apes, and slightly less with the smaller apes which makes them of great scientific interest. But what hadn't really been recognized until recently was the importance that they play in the forest ecosystem. But the April Lions came about because as um, timber companies were opening up remote parts of Africa and Southeast Asia to extract valuable hardwood timber, primarily for export to Europe and China and the factories that produce the furniture that we're all like to sit on, um, that was giving access to bushmeat hunters. And in some cultures, eating apes has special significance. And they're, they're often quite large animals. So if you have a shotgun in your cartridge, uh, a shotgun cartridge in your your gun, um, 
you kind of want the most meat for the cost of the cartridge. So bigger animals tend to be preferred if you've got cartridges suitable for killing them. Which meant that ape numbers were declining. And then babies were often captured to export for the pet trade. Um, a number of notable celebrities had pet apes. And uh, that meant people wanted to emulate their 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 role models, you know, the, the celebrities. Um, and zoos and circuses were using apes, often in shows, to train them to do things. And that brings in money. So the trade in ape meat and live babies was one of the major threats. And that was facilitated by the opening of the forests for the timber industry. And then we saw the huge expansion in palm oil, in, particularly in Southeast Asia, um, which is the, the oil palms are, are an African species of palm, but has been introduced to particularly Malaysia and Indonesia to grow in big monoculture plantations. And in terms of their impact on biodiversity, it's been catastrophic because huge areas of, of rich, biodiverse tropical rainforest have been cleared, timber sold, and oil palms planted. And you get more vegetable oil per unit area of land growing palm oil than any other vegetable oil. So there's a huge incentive. Uh, uh, so, yeah, apes have lost habitat to in industrial uh, agriculture and to timber extraction and of course to mining and all, all the other human stuff that is now intruding into the formerly remote and untouched habitat of apes so anyway it was clear that, that numbers were going down not enough was being done so i convened a, a meeting of london-based organizations that care about apes the gorilla organization the orangutan foundation the jane goodall institute that works on chimpanzees born free foundation um, Fauna and Flora International, WWF, all these different organizations, each doing their own thing, but with very little coordination between them. I said, well, we should we should cooperate. And um, we're still cooperating loosely. It's, it's not that we take charge of the organizations. We just provide a vehicle for them to work together. So we set up different working groups to look at these different issues, the palm oil issue, the bushmeat issue, um, biomedical research, which is still in the 90s being done on apes. Now almost every country has stopped experimenting on apes in laboratories, thank goodness. Um, but the other issues, apes in entertainment, you still see not just apes, but other primates and other wildlife used in movies. And that creates a demand for pets and that whole cycle of abuse. People want a selfie with a, an unusual animal on their shoulder or on their lap. That creates a market for people to make money out of animals, not just apes, uh, captured from the wild. And, and if they're dangerous, possibly drugged or have their teeth pulled out so that they are safe to sit in the lap of someone who will pay $10 to have their picture taken. And that becomes their profile picture. And everyone says, hey, that's cool. Where do I get one of that? Oh, you have to go down there. And that creates a demand that people are going out into the forest to find these animals. And you can't grab adult animals, particularly not apes. So you have to kill the adults to capture the babies. And it's a very destructive process. So that's the sort of thing that the Ape Alliance concerns itself with. And we have um, panel discussions where th these topics are, are debated in, in, in public and you can find videos of those on our website. Um, and perhaps our, our biggest success was to 
take these problems to the United Nations. And so in 2001, um, the United Nations Environment Programme launched the UN Great Ape Survival Partnership in, in collaboration with UNESCO, United Nations Education, Scientific and Cultural Organization. And that, that raised the game. That we, we helped the countries with ape populations develop a national policy. So it wasn't just down to individual NGOs turning up and saying, can we work with your apes? And governments who are otherwise fairly disinterested saying, yeah, all right, it'll cost you so much, here's your permit. Um, instead, it becomes a government policy to ensure that, that um, particularly the great apes, which is what this UN project focuses on, but we want them actually to expand to include, include the smaller apes, the, uh, the gibbons and siamangs. Um, and over the past 20-something years, we, we've seen um, some significant improvements, certainly in terms of policy and in terms of more protected areas and better resources for protecting apes, but the problems have not gone away. And now we're faced with the bigger global problem of, of climate breakdown, not just climate change, the, the changing of, of patterns of, um, of weather, weather systems that used to be reliable. You have so much rain at this time of the year, and now you never quite know when it's going to come. And then you get these extreme weather events that, that damage the habitat. Well, of course, apes suffer just as we do from those changes. But they're also potentially our allies in fighting climate change because of the role they play in the forest ecology. So I think apes and elephants are among the most important gardeners of the forest. Those forests are now considered central to our efforts to stabilize the climate. So ape conservation and elephant conservation becomes not just a case of saving those individual species, but saving the, the function they play. And, and that is an important part of what the world is trying to do in, in stabilizing our climate and halting biodiversity loss. Because when you save a keystone species, just like the keystone in a stone arch. You know, if you're building a stone arch, you have to put up a wooden arch and you stack the stones on top. And when you put the keystone in the middle, you can take away the wooden support and like magic, it stays up. And the term keystone species refers to that ability to hold together the whole ecosystem. So you protect apes or elephants and you protect all the species that are ecologically dependent on them the dung beetles, the, the insects that feed on the trees that depend on their seed dispersal role, um, and, and so on and so forth. So it's it's um, it's encouraging that, that we now have the Paris Climate Accord reinforced by the Glasgow and Sharm el-Sheikh agreements under the UN climate talks. Uh, and we've got the Biodiversity Convention that just last month agreed the post-2020 global biodiversity framework it's a nice snappy title for the document that's supposed to set policy for the world to protect biodiversity um and we think that um focusing on keystone species is a very good way of achieving those goals both the climate goals and the biodiversity goals and that's what we're doing um ape alliance through the activities of ngos but now with rebalance earth um we have the potential for a new source of conservation finance 
from payment for ecosystem services because most of the NGOs in the Ape Alliance depend on public contributions. Please, if you've got any spare money, send it to help us help the apes. apes. And, and the charities that do that do a fantastic job. But philanthropy alone is not going to save the apes in the face of all the huge economic pressures that fund the destruction of their habitats. So um, we, we need to change the thinking. And I think the Ape Alliance is going to be at the forefront of that change. So uh, you also uh, talk about threats to apes. So you mentioned about the biomedical use of apes. So what exactly is a zoo pharma and why is it relevant to apes? Well, that's an interesting question because previously uh, biomedical researchers have seen apes as a good model for humans because they genetically are so, are so like us. If you want to test a drug or a treatment and you don't want to test it on a human because you value human life above all other life, then you test it on the next closest thing, which would be a chimpanzee or a baboon or a macaque. And, and the further away you go from humans in terms of the evolutionary relationship, the more questionable the result. A lot of uh, drugs are tested on, on rodents because they breed fast and most people don't care so much about mice or rats as they do about monkeys or apes. It turns out that, that apes themselves in their natural habitat select certain plants for medicinal value. Whether they do this through instinct or through trial and error is unclear. But ironically, people thought that apes might help cure diseases because we experiment on them. And it turns out that this new science of zoo pharmacognosy, zoo meaning animal, pharma meaning pharmaceutical, cognosy meaning knowledge. So the knowledge of animals using pharmaceuticals, naturally growing plants, whose secondary compounds may have medicinal value. So they discover this and maybe they learn it from their mother because a lot of ape knowledge or behavior is is culturally transmitted down the generations. Um, or maybe they just do it through trial and error. When, they, they've, when they've got an upset tummy and they've eaten a certain plant, they notice, oh, that makes me feel better. Uh, but then that's likely to be a culturally transmitted bit of knowledge to the next generation. If it's a female and her, her infant in her lap or on her back sees her doing this. So that's a fascinating study. And when we look at those plants and then identify which are the interesting chemicals in them, they may have medical use. Now, if that knowledge derives from observations of apes, shouldn't the apes benefit from any profits that are made by pharmaceutical companies? And I, th I just think that's such a lovely turnaround. Instead of seeing the ape as a as a basically a living test tube, you see the ape as a teacher from whom we can learn which are the plants that might have medical value. Amongst all the ape species, which is the most threatened? The most threatened in terms of the numbers, um, of, if you're talking about species rather than subspecies, is the newly described Tapanuli orangutan, um, which lives in Sumatra and was previously thought to just be a regular Sumatran orangutan. But 
studies of their morphology and of their genetics led scientists in 2017 to describe them as a new species, a third species, which in evolutionary terms actually seems to have more affinity to the Bornean than to the Sumatran, which is surprising as they're living in a part of Sumatra. Um, in, in Africa, we're not clear how many bonobos are left because they live in remote, difficult to access forests and estimates vary. Um, the most endangered subspecies of ape would probably be the cross river gorilla, which is only found in little pockets of forest on the borders of Cameroon and Nigeria. And there are thought to be perhaps only 250, 280 or so of those. Um, and those are actually divided in about 11 different subpopulations with possibly some gene flow between them, but they're sort of isolated fragments of forest. That's a really critical situation to keep the Cross River Gorilla with us. Um, and the West African chimpanzee is also highly endangered in some countries, has lost 90% of its numbers in the past two or three decades, particularly in, in uh, Ivory Coast through deforestation and the bushmeat trade and the capture of babies for the wild, the, the live animal trade, illegal wild animal trade. So there's a lot to do still. Um, and we work, uh, Ape Alliance works with, well, any, any actors in, in these habitats who are interested. And so increasingly now, um, the big companies that want to either mine or, or convert forest to plantation their customers and their investors are demanding evidence of their environmental credentials. So they have to look at the the UN Sustainable Development Goals and see where they fit. And if they can't stand up and say, yes, we are a good citizen in the global economy, and this is what we're doing to prevent destruction of nature and help developing countries, then their investors are going to stop withdrawing investments. And, and so it's, it's suddenly become economically important to demonstrate that you're not being destructive. At the same time, all the traditional activities of exploration for minerals and, and for oil uh, goes on. And there are right now um, oil exploration and um, drilling projects which potentially could threaten critical ape habitat when the world is supposedly moving away from fossil fuels, we should really not be allowing companies to start drilling in places that are so sensitive to not only the, the apes, but the whole ecosystem on which we depend to clean up the mess of the greenhouse gases from the past two centuries of burning fossil fuels. <laughs> it's crazy. We're putting more and more burden on the Earth's ecosystems whilst simultaneously reducing them and their capacity to deal with the problem. So my final question for this episode is that what has been your greatest learning from your conservation career? Uh, what have I learned? Um, I've been doing this for um, 45 years or so now. And I think the, the lessons are simple, that, that you value the animals and their ecosystem and you work with the people. 
And some people, when they hear about poachers killing apes or elephants, they, they want to shoot them or, or string them up. I say, no, I want to hire them. They've got skills. And if you can bring them on side to help in the conservation so that they have a, a decent living and some respect in their community, they won't want to be poachers. And that depends on there being a value for, for living nature. So I, I think there, there is no they should do something about conservation. There's only we. So conservationists just have to bring everyone into the conversation, even if they perhaps previously saw them as an enemy. You have to form alliances. So the ape alliance is an example of that. Anyone can be an ape ally. You just have to work together to ensure that apes and their natural habitats survive. Um, and that's going to include people who might previously have been um, destroyers of ape habitat um, and might previously have been hunters of apes. But for those who say, well, we've been hunting apes for generations. My grandfather hunted apes and ate them and my father didn't. I will and my children will. My answer to them is, well, you're going to stop eating apes. And you can stop now when there are still some apes in the forest providing that vital role to the world. Or you can stop in a few years' time when they've all gone. But you will stop because at the current rate of decline, almost every ape population is declining. The only one that isn't, uh, the two that aren't, are the two mountain gorilla populations. And that's because suddenly through tourism, they're perceived to have a value. But that sort of suggests that the apes that aren't visited by tourists don't have a value. And that's what we're trying to change through Rebalance Earth. They have a value. It has previously been underestimated or undervalued and we want to bring a, a real cash value to the apes being alive and well in their forest and elephants being alive and well in, in their habitat whether it's forest or savanna um and and that you know i, I didn't uh, three years ago i had no idea that, that things were moving in this direction but just in the past three years a lot of the elements of my 45 years of experience of chasing poachers and, and trying to arrest them, um, trying to close down illegal markets for bushmeat or baby apes or ivory, um, working with UN agencies to try and improve law, laws and law enforcement. All these things have been trying to slow or, or reverse that decline. And suddenly we realize actually not only is it good to do that because apes are really interesting and we quite like them, they're actually critically important in the bigger global effort to stabilize the climate and keep the biosphere, which is, you know, the little thin film on the surface of the planet in which we live. <laughs> We've got to keep that habitable. And, and that is going to involve everyone because we will all benefit from it. And so we need to structure our economy so that we all, in our everyday purchases, are helping to pay for it. That's the big goal. That was my final question for the podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for a series of very good questions. I hope the uh, the listeners find it interesting. Thank you. <laughs>